We invited Terry Lovelace to come on Astonishing Legends two years ago to talk about his book, Incident at Devil's Den. It's hard to believe we've released 66 episodes since then. It was such a bone-chilling story that it feels much more recent to us in a lot of ways. Terry, a former felony prosecutor and now a certified healthcare risk manager, is a compelling and believable eyewitness, and we're not the only ones who think that. His episode elicited more emails than nearly all of the shows preceding it, and that tracks because we're not the only ones getting emails and letters. Terry was too. And he collected, read, and saved all of them. Tonight, Terry is back with us. He's written a new book with significantly more details about what happened to him and his friend Toby all those years ago. He's also included 30 of the stories those folks sent him, which resonated the most with him personally. This new book is called Devil's Den, The Reckoning, and much like Incident at Devil's Den, it is enthralling. When someone has a personal experience like this, what happens after it's over? What is the aftermath? Oftentimes, there's so much more than just the incident itself. There are ongoing attempts to make sense of it and deal with the fallout for the people affected by it and the damage done to the survivors. It must be quite a thing to go through an abduction experience and quite something else to hear from people worldwide that have had something similar happen to them too. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The extraterrestrials chose to appear to me as circus monkeys. They chose to appear in a way I would find less threatening and adults would find impossible to believe. Paraphrased from page 81 of Terry Lovelace's new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series with returning guest, Terry Lovelace. And we're back. That we are, folks, and it feels good to be back. You didn't think the scary stories were going to end with Halloween, did you? No. Well, we have a few very quick announcements to make tonight. The first one being that I have to make a correction to something I said in The Exorcist Part 3. Uh-oh, here it comes. Yeah, I well, this is entirely on, on me. This is my fault. I had said that our guest, Sarah, from Sarah and the Spider Woman, had been diagnosed with anti-NMDAR encephalitis which was not the case. To be more accurate, what happened was that when she heard Father Duffy on our show talking about thyroid disorders, she had that looked into and her doctors determined that she had Graves' disease. Graves' disease is also an autoimmune disorder, but the symptoms it generates are very similar to the anti-NMDAR encephalitis and other similar conditions. Still, that was my mistake, so I wanted to correct it. Hearing the episode still saved her life, and it still all tracks back to my favorite murder, and then our guest as well, <laughs> Father Duffy, but the cause of her issue was different. In any event, the diagnosis she requested helped to save her. So apologies, Sarah, if you're still listening, for misrepresenting that. And a huge shout out to Kirsten on Twitter for pointing that out. Yeah, one question here. What is the R in NMDA receptor encephalitis? No, it's receptor. When the R is there, it's part of the acronym. Ah. It was NMDA, but now they've made the R part of the acronym. So you can say NMDA 
receptor encephalitis. Okay. Actually, anti. You can say anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, or you can say anti-NMDAR encephalitis and leave receptor out because the receptor becomes the R in the acronym for the NMDA. I see. I see. And no better instance than why you should never, never, ever take medical advice from us. Yeah, I'm going to go with any advice, really. Oh, and one (laughs) other quick announcement. We were just on Talk is Jericho with one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, Chris Jericho, to talk about the Beast of Gévaudan. So check that out on his podcast, which again is called Talk is Jericho. We'll have a link to it in our show notes, but you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. That dude is prolific. Aside from being a world championship wrestler, he is also the lead singer of the heavy metal band Fozzy, and they rock. They're actually on tour right now. Anyway, we had a great time over there, so check it out. All right, folks. Well, we got a great show for you tonight, so it's time to welcome our guest, Terry Lovelace, back to Astonishing Legends. So, Terry, this is a real pleasure having you back on the show. The last time we had you on, I have to be honest, I was not sure how your story was going to be received. It is such an intense story. I would describe it. I feel like the word that I think of when I think about your history and what you've been through, the word that pops up the most is disconcerting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's very disconcerting. Let's and be honest here. Scott was afraid, and with good reason, how people would react. But I was trying to convince him the overall factor that I think made us want to tell your story, wanted you to tell your story, was your credibility and the way you spoke. And the first interview I heard with you, I believe on Coast to Coast, I think Linda Moulton Howe was, was introducing you and your segment. It's like, this guy is just ringing true. So I, I told Scott, don't worry. I think that, well, we'll see. We don't know how people are going to react. And it was received a lot better than we thought it would be. Let me just put it that way. It generated a lot of emails for me. Yeah. And I want to hear about that. Because what I would say is we got a lot of emails too, but the, the quotient of the sort of the negative ones that you get and the troll type stuff was very, very low. We got more of that from other much more benign stories. So People were really on board, I think, again, with your sincerity. So, yeah, what was it like for you after you came on the show, and uh, what happened uh, in terms of feedback that you got? Every time I'm on a show, and I've been on lots of shows, but in some regard, it's like telling it for the very first time. I'm reliving it. I'm going through it in my head, and I hope that it comes across as genuine and with sincerity, because it certainly is intended to. I think I had 1,400 emails from people when I wrote this book. You know, when I first wrote Incident of Devil's Den, I thought, you know, I might get 100, 150 emails from people, and I'm now knocking on the door of 1,800. Wow. And so many people email me and say, this about your book or what you said really resonates with me. So I appreciate that. Something about my book resonates with people. And I think there's a threat, a threat of commonality between what I experienced and what a lot of other people experienced. So, Terry, now that you're back on the show, and we are going to point folks to your prior appearance on the show, of course, uh, where they can hear your story in depth. But for folks that haven't heard that, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, I know it wasn't the first incident, but the one that you've documented the most in your life and the one that seems to have had the biggest impact for you. Yeah, that would have been the June 1977 event when I was active duty in the United States Air Force. I was stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base, which is uh, east of Kansas City. And in June, well, actually about April of 1977, my coworker, we were both EMTs, we medics, we drove an ambulance, and we worked the night shift from 11 o'clock p.m. to 8 o'clock in the following morning. My friend came up to me and said, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. 
So like, you know, what? What do you, what do you want to do? You want to do what? You know, you want to go camping? Why don't we just, you know, sleep in your garage and eat bugs and save the save the gas? You know. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. And he made a pretty good argument. And uh, I was an amateur photographer. I had a little dark room. I wanted to take some pictures of wildlife. He was an amateur astronomer. He wanted to be somewhere where there was zero light pollution. And he ran into a guy who gave him a, a map of the park and told him that there was supposedly this high ground, like a plateau. As a matter of fact, thanks to you guys, we actually we, it was actually located. I had never gone back and looked for it. Yeah, I had some fun looking for that on Google Earth. I was glad to hear that you you felt like it coincided with where this happened. Oh, absolutely. I didn't bother to look because I thought it'd be covered with 45-year-old mature trees by now. And that's not the case. Right. So my friend and I ended up planning this trip. And we made the trip to Devil's Den State Park, which is just on the other side of the Missouri-Arkansas border in northwest Arkansas. And we didn't know it at the time, but the park actually has kind of a long, dark history of disappearances and things. And David Polite's Missing 411 book series, if anyone's ever heard of them, if you haven't, it's an excellent series of books. His fourth volume is called Missing 411, The Devil is in the Details. And Devil's Den is, is in the book. We were both city kids. We'd never been camping before. I'd never been camping. Toby had never been camping. But, you know, it's not rocket science. We bought a cheap tent, air mattresses, put a cooler together with some food, and we went down and six-and-a-half-hour drive south, two-lane blacktop back in the day, found the park, and went in, and we intentionally dodged the kiosk. We weren't going to get a camping permit. You know, I thought we were going to stay in a campground. And was like, no, 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 man, let's be real outdoors, but let's go somewhere where there's no light pollution. You know, if you stay in a campground, you're going to have people to the right of you, people to the left of you. We don't want that. And, you know, I kind of agreed with him. We took off on a road that went to the northwest, I believe, and we ran across a chain in the road, chain across the road, with a pretty sternly worded, keep out, do not enter, no hunting, no camping, no fishing. And we thought it was some kind of nature preserve. But we come to find out that it's, it's not actually even part of Devil's Den State Park. It's federal land owned by the Bureau of Land Management and leased to some individual. So... We were able to get around the chain, and we drove in, and through good luck or happenstance, we stumbled upon this uh, this plateau. It was just beautiful. It was just perfect. And we drove up steep. It wasn't paved. It wasn't, it wasn't gravel. It was just made out of dirt road. It was pretty high grade, straight up. We went up, crested the top of the hill, and this beautiful meadow opened up in front of us. And, you know, we were like, this is a place, you know, this, this is great. It was, it was gorgeous. It was elevated to the point where, where we were walking on this meadow. We were level with the tops of the trees. And it was just, it was just gorgeous. And we did all the fun stuff you do when you were camping. And of course, it was all new to us. So we had a pretty nice time. There were some missteps that I have trouble reconciling. And that was we forgot some things. And that was just out of character for us. I mean, the things we forgot were just not that inept. I just, I don't get it. But that's what we did. We set up our camp. We're on our first night there, my friend sees, uh, to his left, he sees three little stars on the horizon and a tight triangle. And he asked me, hey, Terry, were those, were those trees there? Or pardon me, were those lights there before? About Three or four minutes before this, before he sees the lights on the horizon, I noticed 
that we were having trouble conversing. We were laying back on our air mattresses. We were having trouble conversing across the campfire because the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff that makes noise in the night in the forest was loud. And that abruptly stopped. And I noticed that silence. And I asked my friend, is that, is that normal? And he blew it off. He's like, yeah, you know, look, we've been laughing and cutting up. We made a lot of noise. We just quieted them. They'll be back. But that unnerved me. And a couple minutes later, he saw these three lights on the horizon. He asked me, were they there before? And I said, I don't think so. You know, you're the guy that knows about the night sky. Do, do they belong there? And he said, no, I don't think they do. While we watched, they, they moved. The first thing they did was they rotated like they were on an axis and turned and aligned themselves where the base of the triangle was parallel with the horizon. And as soon as it did that, it started to move up. And as it started to move up, I felt this wave of almost sedation. I would call it sedation, wash over me. I wouldn't say quite apathy, but our emotions were muted. They were, it was almost disinterest. It was a strange place to be, but our, our emotions were not appropriate to what we were witnessing. I'm sure my friend was in the same frame of mind because we didn't have any conversation. And while we watched, this thing climbed up into the sky. It was pretty obvious that it was one solid object, not three objects moving in unison. And it reached a height. I don't know how high it was, but it reached a height, a ceiling. And then it changed orientation from where we were seeing three lights, three points of light. It turned like this. So it was kind of parallel with the earth. And then it started like a glide descent. And as it descended, it did uh, two somersaults where the, the apex of the triangle, which was pointed toward us, dipped down and then came all the way back around. And it did that twice. I had the feeling that it was done intentionally, that it was done to show that this thing is moving with purpose. It's not out of control. Its intent is to do that. It stopped at about 3,000 feet over our campground or over the meadow. We'd set up camp kind of offset, kind of near the tree line, thankfully, so this thing wasn't hanging right over our heads. But like I say, it was 3,000 feet over our heads. That feeling of calm sedation that we had changed, and it changed from sedation to sleepy. I was just, all I wanted to do was pick up my air mattress, walk to the tent, throw it in, and go to for sleep. And that's that's what we did. I woke up some hours later to flashing lights that were orange, some greenish, yellow, and white, and they weren't on a steady or regular pattern. They were just at odd intervals flashing real bright through the canvas of our tent. And I woke up and I didn't have my wits about me. I'm thinking, where am I? Oh yeah, we're camping. And I looked down and my boots had been unlaced. And that annoyed me because I knew I didn't, I didn't go to bed like that. So I pulled them off and my socks were on sideways. It was a few days later before it occurred to me that we had been dressed and redressed is the reason for that. So I put them on properly and I noticed my friend was on his knees peeking out through a flap on his side of the tent. And in one of these flashes of white light, I could see tracks of tears down the right side of his face. Saline in the tears, I guess, fluoresced. That put my fear level at about a three because I couldn't imagine what would make this man cry. 
in my mind's eye, I'm thinking, you know, these these lights were overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck or something. And I asked him, I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? What's out there? Is it park rangers? And he didn't give me a coherent answer. And I got to my knees and I looked out of the flap in my tent and I saw that this thing that was 3,000 feet over the metal room with the bed had descended sometime over the night while we were asleep. And it's now just 30 feet over the floor of the metal. And that's why we were able to see the side of it. For before, when it was 3,000 feet up in the air, all we could see was the underside. As I said, we were offset from it. And it was, it was immense. It was a city block on each leg of the triangle. And I also saw what I took to be a dozen, maybe 15 children, what I took to be children, walking around in this meadow underneath this thing. And I asked my friend, Toby, man, what are, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. And he said this, he said, don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And the second he said that, I had flashes of memory in my mind of being aboard this thing. We both suffered some burns. I had like the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life. I never blistered. I never peeled. We both had what the doctors called flash burns to our eyes, which is what an arc welder would get if they didn't wear the hood. It's very painful. It's you're very photophobic. Sunlight is painful. You know, when two people go through some kind of experience like this, human nature is you want to talk about it, you want to debrief, you want to validate each other's story. And there was none of that. The only thing we really uh, discussed was we agreed that under no circumstances would we admit to seeing a UFO. Because we were both terrified that that would lead to a psychological evaluation and possibly discharge from the Air Force, maybe lose our education benefits, which was the object of this exercise. So we agreed that we didn't want to lie. We would just tell them we went to bed feeling funny, woke up, felt terrible, came home. Had the sunburn and burns to our eyes. And that was our story we stuck with. And of course, there's a lot more that followed. I don't have time to go into it. But I'm going to give you a capsule version of, of what happened to us in, in June of 1977. One more thing I should mention is that it changed the nature of our relationship. And that was that this guy, I'd worked with him for three years. We were both recently married. His wife and my wife were best of friends. I was age 22 at the time. He was 23. And for some reason, on the way back, I didn't want anything to do with this guy. And I really had trouble reconciling that emotion then. I have trouble with it today. I don't know where that comes from. But you know, that seems to be a common thing among people that experience this stuff. They don't want to talk about it. Or a group of friends will witness something, and I call it the band breaks up. I had literally dozens of people write to me and tell me they experienced that. And there's an excellent book by Ray Fowler called The Allagash Four about a um, thing that happened on the lake in the, up in Maine. And that happened in August of 1977. Or pardon me, 1976. I think it happened about a year before our experience. But lots of similarities. Missing time, yeah. I should give a couple updates, too, about an incident at Devil's Den. I, I promised the readers that, because I gave the story of Rodney Letterman, 32-year-old man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, who was walking the Butterfield Trail with a friend. He left his inhaler in the truck. He had asthma, and he had an asthma attack. And he asked his friend, hey, would you run back to the 
truck and grab my inhaler? Friend says, sure, no sweat. So friend runs back to the truck, grabs the inhaler, runs back, and there's no Rodney Letterman. All there is is a cell phone on the ground. And I was able to speak with someone from the Russellville Police Department who told me that they brought in dogs who got a scent from the phone, but then just sat down. And I said, well, what does that mean? I don't know anything about dogs. And he says, that means that the scent ends there. And I said, well, how can that be? He says, I, I don't know. He either went up or he went down, but he wasn't there. So what followed was a seven-day intensive search with uh, lots of volunteers and lots of people, helicopters for clear, forward-looking infrared radar, looking for a heat signature from the guy at night. Nothing. They find nothing. The official search ended at the seventh day and then transitioned to, you know, from a rescue to a recovery. And the family paid some private trackers to try to find the guy. And that, that went on through October. And they never found, from August 17th, they never found anything of the guy. And I told the readers, I'll give you an update if I get one. In March of 2019, I got an update. A young couple was walking down the Butterfield Trail. And there's a log that runs parallel to the trail. He told me that this young couple, the young lady says to her friend, is that an albino turtle? And the friend's like, what? What are you talking about? And there is a roughly triangular-shaped white thing. And what's curious is it's sitting directly in the center of this, of this log. The log's kind of a decorative piece that kind of lines the trail. And I thought back to my days as a, as a prosecutor, and it's kind of it's kind of like a staged crime scene. The rangers were sure it wasn't there the day before because it was so conspicuous. They said, you know, we saw it. And they uh, retrieved it with a proper forensic protocol, sent it to the medical examiner in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, who verified that it was the very top of Rodney Letterman's skull. And that is all they ever found of Rodney Letterman. Not a scrap of clothing or other bones or anything. Just, just that. Hey, this is Chris Jericho, AEW champion and lead singer of Fozzie and the host of Talk is Jericho. When I'm on the road, which is all the time, and have some downtime, which is also all the time, I listen to Astonishing Legends. You should as well, because there ain't nothing more legendary than the dream team of Philbrook and Burgess, right up there with Martin and Lewis, Batman and Robin, and the Sasquatch and the Loch Ness Monster, Daddy. That also reminded me of another case from the Missing 411 in one of their documentaries. And in that case, I don't think it's the same one. It's a documentary I saw last year produced by David Politis, where it also documents the only thing being found from somebody who went missing, and I think maybe this was a year or two later, was a large piece of skull fragment of this man's poor son. And that was the only thing found. They were able to track it to his son, but that was striking to me and that people who saw it was, as you called it, the crown of the skull and not a perfect cut around the top, but the dome part of it, right? Yes. Yeah, I was told by someone from a police department that, that this was jagged on the edges, like it had been broken, roughly football shaped. Right. I believe what they found of this man's son's skull fragment was was a pretty large piece, and I don't think anything else was found. There might have been some clothing. That's another typical thing of the uh, 
that's odd about the missing 411 is they might find clothing. And of course, if you think it's a wild animal attack, which of course, that's the most logical thing that people gravitate to and, and want to settle on, the clothes don't look as aged as they should be for being out in the weather for two years. Sometimes I believe there's cases where the clothing is folded. Like you say, a staged crime scene. There are. I've read, I've read the entire series. There are cases where the clothing is folded. There are cases that intrigue, this intrigues me, like a, a pair of pants is left on the ground and it looked like someone just stepped out of them. So it's just collapsed. And sometimes on top of shoes. And lots of times, majority of the times when people are found, they're found barefoot. Right. We're not going to talk about this in detail right now, but I wanted to tease this little element because it's a, a long arc, connect the dots for me in that, do you believe that this case that you just described with Rodney Letterman has anything to do with what Sue or Betty, as we'll get to uh, introduce her later on, had to tell you about what some ETs might be up to, which may involve abduction and murder? Do you think that there's a connection there? I, I think so. This is just conjecture. I try to stay away from conjecture. Right. But as long as it's invited, I'll give it. <laughs> well, of course. But as, like yourself, as you say in the book, we learn more about this by seeing similarities and connecting dots and finding commonalities between cases. And it just, it just occurred to me as we had on Jeremy Corbell a couple of episodes ago, and part of the discussion turned to kind of the reason that he got in touch with us through a friend and listener now was a cattle mutilation site and it's somewhere in northern Texas. And when you hear about it and then you wonder, why is this going on? Is it just scientific sampling from some powerful organization? Or is it something that fits that, but also in a more rudimentary way, just for the meat? And you do wonder about that. And after reading your book, it does make me wonder if there are more motivations, let's say. But we can talk about that when we when we start to go to the most revealing things towards the end of our discussion. But I just want to put that out there so we can circle back on it later. Yeah, Linda Moulton Howe read my second book and reached out to me with kind of the same question. Mm. And I've been on her show a couple of times and we had a nice long discussion. I won't go into it now, but there is a thread of commonality. I didn't even realize that runs through the, with the cattle mutilations. I had people from the near-death experience community, mm. maybe seven, eight people write to me and say, do you see the, the things in common between near-death experiences and an abduction experience? And I was like, no, I never gave that a thought. And they say that there is. I was certainly reminded of that when uh, you talked about it in a section of your book about consciousness studies and the personality, the, the essence of, of someone's soul and consciousness surviving after bodily death. And was, that's a running gag and meme on our show is everything being connected. And it certainly seemed to connect up in that, that regard with not only the abduction experience, but also the near-death experience and all these strange things that happen to people where you, you now see commonalities laying over one on top of another in different phenomena. Yeah. Ghosts, Bigfoot, all of it. Yeah. Everything is connected. It seems like. Well, did you have other updates you want to share? Do you want to talk about, because we, I do want to talk about your cousin, Gerald, and also your friend, Ernie. I think we should touch on that. It's a fascinating component of your new book. Yeah, let's jump into that. I'll tell you, I wrote both of those chapters for inclusion in Incident at Devil's Den, the first book. And my editor said, look, you've talked enough about your childhood. Nobody wants to hear all about your childhood. You know, 
this isn't your memoirs, this is a book to disclose what happened. So yeah, I think it's very important. I had a cousin, his name was Gerald, and he lived in North Central Arkansas. And my family came from that, that part of Arkansas originally. And back in World War II, migrated to St. Louis, Missouri for jobs. We lived a number of hours apart, you know, a good half day's drive. They would come once a year and spend uh, a week, maybe two weeks in the summer with us. And then, you know, around Thanksgiving, we'd go down to their house and they would host us for a couple of weeks. Whoever the host was supplied the food and the water and the beverage, you know, playing cards. And uh, I think it was how poor people vacationed back in the day, kind of a weird Airbnb kind of thing. So they came up to see us in 1963. This was just a few months before I saw the saucer in my backyard that I speak about in Incident at Devil's Den. I was having just a hard time with the monkey man thing, with four little monkeys that would appear in my room and abduct me. And it was crazy, too, because they would ask, won't you come with us today? Come with us. We'll bring you back. Put you back in bed in time. When you talked about them in the first time you were on and then reading about them again, it, it is such a frightening idea. And then when you have these other stories, a good component of your new book being things that people have sent into you where people are experiencing similar interactions, but with different creatures, it's almost like each experience is tailored to the person. What One detail, and maybe you had this in your first book, one detail that I missed was when you said it was like they had these masks that were like paper plates with the eyes cut out. Yeah. Like that, just, I was like, ugh, what is happening? And why, I mean, if you know it's a monkey, why is it wearing this mask? It's just so crazy. Yeah. And, and you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think that these things have the ability to appear to the child in a way that the child will find most benign. Right. Because when I first saw them, I thought they were kind of comical. My poor cousin, Gerald, he wasn't in a room by himself. He was in a room with twin brothers that were younger than him in bunk beds in the same room. And these four little clowns. My wife likes to say, you know, the circus theme fits the loveliest family, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he saw clowns. Yeah, because so he was, he was seeing clowns, like small clowns. Yeah. And you know, people emailed me. They saw raccoons. They saw orbs of light. One woman saw Disney characters. Owls. Uh, deer, owls. Lots of owls. Yeah. Yeah. The most comical thing, but also frightening, if you think about it, 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 it turns that way, is somebody seeing what looked like small Elmo creatures from the Muppets, the small red furry creatures popping up in the field and then more and more and then starting to come towards them. And it wasn't so comical anymore. Even their, their appearance is, is funny. And to a kid, of course, it's a very welcome sight. But after a while, when you see more and more of them and then you get the sense that they're not here to be friendly. And it's probably time to go before more show up and you find out what they're really after. We've heard that from the book. But the other thing was the mechanics of, as you described it, the paper mask. And that when I read that passage, I was wondering, you described their facial expressions, them speaking to you, but not moving their lips. But you, you have a pie plate type paper mask that they're all wearing with eye holes cut out. So you could see these blazing yellow eyes underneath. But was the rest of the face painted on the paper of sorts, or was it animated on the paper? I remember it as being a painted on, like with a magic marker, smile. But when I, when I would say, no, it's not right, I don't want to go, that would morph into a, a grimace. So, yeah, I think that somehow it was, it was changing. 
Right. That's the impression that I got was that it was not natural. It wasn't a picture on the paper or glued onto the paper somehow. It wasn't a picture of a monkey's face, but it was drawn or illustrated, but also it animated itself, like to change expression. It did. Okay. That seemed like the case to me. And the same thing with the clowns. You still had the bright yellow eyes underneath that Gerald described, but a clown's face, as you said, with a, with a red nose painted on, but it was also animated. Yeah, it was animated in that we both agreed that the smile could turn to a grimace. I don't remember the right. word you used. It wasn't frowned, but it turned into something more frightening. Right. And in regards to that, bringing it back to David Weatherly's book, that's something I noticed as well when you said you know, you finally had had enough and you yelled out, this isn't right. I don't want to go with you. That's not what they wanted to hear. The four monkeys that entered your your bedroom numerous times, they suddenly were very displeased. And I think you described the eyes turning black. I don't remember that so much. Okay. I I do remember the eyes and the the grin and all turning threatening, but they have the ability to control my perception. So Right. It was just another tie-in, though, with what, in David's book, yes, accounts from people. You're, you're absolutely right. Not turning black, but as in pupils dilating. Ah. Because right. I made the comparison to my cat's eyes, how her eyes would dilate. So, yeah, there was less of the yellow iris around the pupil because the black part of the eye would dilate. So that is true. Wow. That is interesting because people have sworn that they've seen or met black-eyed children and black-eyed adults. And when they get angry or you upset them, the eyes, the full sclera turning completely black and that freaking people out. But it's like, I guess the comparison is that that's one aspect that whatever these things are, black-eyed adults and children or minion aliens that are the grays or whatever they're disguised at can't control for some reason Maybe it's spiritual, I don't know, but they can't hide the eyes. There's always something that is not completely 100% spot on, and that's what gives them away, and it's usually when they can't control their emotions. You talk about, in your book, so much about they're masters of thought. If they're able to communicate telepathically, you don't need language, and they have that under control, except when they get very emotional if they have emotions at all, but they do seem to to be displeased when things aren't going their way. You know, I had a couple of people write to me and say, these things don't have emotions at all. And I emailed them back and said, well, you know, the ones I did, I thought experienced emotion. Can you tell me how you, you came to that conclusion? And they couldn't. This is more towards the end of the book. I don't remember reading it in Incident at Devil's Den, But I found it chilling, and you described it yourself as one of the most chilling aspects, is that when you were taken aboard the ship and you were immobile, unable to move except for your eyes, you and Toby, and I I don't want to bring this back to finding out what happened to Toby, which we can talk about after this, but you, you looked over at him with just your eyes, and at that moment, coincidentally, he had looked at you, and you both locked eyes, and you said, in that moment... He knew all your thoughts, your history, your deepest, darkest secrets. But the way you described it was chilling in that he instantly knew all this about you. Like your Akashic record, you could say. Everything that was stored information about you, but there was zero emotion, zero empathy. It was strictly pure intellect. 
the guy was in my head and, and it was pure intellect. And I, and I came away from that feeling so inadequate emotionally, intellectually on all levels. Wait, you're talking about the bug, right? Not Toby. No, I'm talking about when we were both frozen, standing side by side, there was about a six foot tall alien. He was taller than the greys. The greys were running around. That's the guy that was in your head. That's the guy that he's as far to my left as I could be and keep him in my, in my field of vision. And I'm straining my eyes to the left. He turned his head and we boom, locked eyes for a millisecond and that millisecond. And that was the most frightening thing that happened to me. Yeah. That was more frightening than the uh, insectoid things. It had a medical vibe to them. Did you get anything back as far as what he got from you? Any impressions, thoughts? Of course, there's the the interesting scene in the, the movie Independence Day where the president gets a mind meld with the alien and he says, I could see everything they wanted to do. They're they're locusts. They're going to use all our resources. They want us gone. Not only was uh, the alien able to telepathically communicate with him or through Brett Spiner, but there was an exchange of information and that once you open that, that pathway, he got something back. But in your case, you got nothing from them. No, nothing with, with, with that entity, nothing whatsoever. Hmm. In The Reckoning, I thought it was very poignant when you described the relationship was similar to like how you feel as a human, how you feel about your dog. The, in terms of intellect, and that you are felt as intellectually insignificant to this being as a dog would feel to a person. That's the best analogy I can think of. It really is. Well, yeah, you made that one. I mean, I, and I thought that was really compelling, just in terms of you're not going to be able to have a conversation or say, what are your motivations or anything like that any more than my dog is going to be able to ask me where I'm going when I go to get in the car. That's frightening to me. Yeah. I guess it was equally, of course, frightening to Toby. And we received a handful of emails after your interview the first time with people asking us what happened to Toby. And you didn't go into too much detail, I think, out of respect for the family and his ex-wife. But you also received a lot of questions. In fact, that might be the biggest question or the most often asked question to you is what happened to your best friend, Toby. Yeah. And before I go into Toby and his because he had a sad decline. I do think it's fair to mention that I had my own struggles. I came away from this scar. One of the things that we shared, and that a lot of people that have been through this share, is a fear of the night and fear of the darkness. I still sleep with a light on. I uh, sleep with the door open. Uh, the drapes have to be drawn tightly closed. I really have a tough time sleeping in a hotel room. In the beginning, I would have a glass of wine before I went to bed. And, you know, then that became two, and then that became three. And luckily, I recognized that as a slippery slope and uh, gave that up. And, of course, in the 90s and eight, 80s, really, there was a proliferation of benzodiazepines. And, uh, you know, if you want some volume to help you sleep, there you go. But then again, that, that's a slippery slope of its own. So I learned to uh, live on two hours sleep or... I still, I'll take a 25 milligram Benadryl before I go to bed. That seems to be all I need. Most nights I can get to sleep. But Toby and his wife separated shortly after they went to Japan. And Toby's wife, Tammy, left him and took their two children back to the States. And she was somewhere in a little town, municipality around LA. And I don't remember which one it was. 
And she called my wife, this was in the 80s, and said the guy she, she had remarried, and I think her children were adopted by him. And he was a long-haul trucker. He was driving across country, and she was going to go on a trip with him. And the kids stay with their grandparents, and she was going to go. She'd never been on a cross-country trip before, and they were going to go to Detroit. And I was in Lansing, so we were right on the way. And she asked my wife, would, would you guys like some company? And we were like, sure, absolutely, stop by, you know. So they did. And I got to ask her what happened to Toby. And it was a bit awkward in that here she is with her new man, and I'm wanting to quiz her about her ex. So I didn't get to go into the depth that I really wanted to. But the short story was that Toby had pretty much the same problems I had in that he was afraid to go to sleep at night. And she said that Toby turned into a drinker, and he was not a drinker before this happened at all. And the last time I saw him, I smelled liquor on his breath, and that was out of character for him. But she said that he would not drink during the day. He didn't frequent bars. But as the sun started to go down, he would start pounding vodka. He had to do that to sleep. We all know what happens when you go down that path. I mean, it robs you of REM sleep. It's unhealthy on so many levels. He uh, ended up not being able to go to the University of Michigan and study physics. Had a string of failed careers and never remarried. The other story I tell in the book is about the FBI agent, and I drew a lot of fire from this, from people in law enforcement. And I want to be clear, I try to be clear in the book, and that is that, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I worked with law enforcement. felt like I was on the team, and I have nothing but the greatest respect for people in law enforcement. I think we do a very tough job. And the federal agents that I've met in the course of my career have all been stand-up people. I mean, just to cut above. And I met a FBI agent in the 80s. We became friends. We were both working at the same law firm on a case doing different things I won't go into, but sometimes we'd meet at the bar on a Friday night and have a cocktail and some bar snacks and kind of decompress from the week. So I decided I'm going to ask this guy, hey, can you find Toby for me? So you got to understand FBI humor, I guess. Because I asked him, I said, hey, can you help me find a buddy I was in the Air Force with? And he's like, sure, I can find anybody as long as you're not a fugitive. And I, and I feigned a laugh because that's, of course, what they do. He said, sure. He says, you know, I can't open an investigation, obviously. But he says, as a favor to a friend, let me see what I can do for you. He says, give me everything you got on the guy. Write down every single detail you can think of. Give me photographs, habits, uh, relatives you know of, where he went to school, what he did, what he liked, what he didn't like. Give me everything. I want to quickly interject here for our listeners just to refresh so everyone knows who we're talking about. This is Terry's friend that was with him for the incident in 1977 that we're talking about here. So, Yeah, thank you. That needs to be clarified. This is, this is my friend Toby that was with me on the camping trip. Yeah. I refer to him in the book as Frank, the FBI agent. I dropped off the paperwork for him, which I ended up, you'd be amazed if you worked three years at a night shift with someone, how much you would learn about them. And I had three type pages full of stuff and a couple of photographs that I wish I'd kept and I didn't get back. But, you know, it is what it is. He acknowledged receipt of them, put them in a sealed envelope, dropped them off at his office. He said, I'll get back to you. Give me two weeks. And uh, two weeks to the day, I got a phone call and said, hey, I got some info on your buddy. Meet me at the bar. Sure. So for that Friday, we met. And he was, on, he was late, and that was out of character for him. 
And when he walked in, he had a, you know, this hangdog expression that it didn't look like it was going to be good news, whatever it was he wanted to tell me. And he sat down and he said, I got bad news for you. Your friend is dead. And I said, he's dead? What do you mean he's dead? He's a young man. How can he be dead? And he had this elaborate story about on Highway 94, out of Flint, there was a crossover accident. This is an interstate highway, and it was a head-on head-on collision. And he was the only fatality, but he didn't make it. And I'm just, I'm stunned. And he's like, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, Terry, but you know, you've been around the block once or twice. You know that this happens. This is, this is life. I mean, my suggestion is you, you know, process it, move on with your life. And I kicked myself because I could have so easily picked up the phone and called the Michigan State Police and verified that. Could have easily, I even thought about doing that. I thought about getting a copy of the police report. And I didn't for whatever reason. And then in 2017, when I was working on the incident at Devil's Den, I thought, you know, it would be nice to go to Michigan and visit his grave. I'd like to do that. So in the course of running that down, I found that he was alive until September of 2007. So the FBI agent lied to me. I think, I mean, again, this is conjecture, but I, I really believe this. And I've had some other people say that they'd be inclined to agree somewhere. There's a file for Toby and I on the federal level and some kind of note that says, hey, these two guys shouldn't get their heads together and come up with a story. Because I think we could present a very credible argument. Just to revisit, I mean, I remember this, but again, to tell our listeners, the base you guys were at, what was the job of that base, Whiteman, at the time? Whiteman at the time was a strategic air command or a SAC base. And it had a squadron of B-52s armed with nuclear weapons. And it had a squadron of uh, Minutemen II ICBM missiles spread out all over the, the countryside. So it was a very high security, very secretive kind of place to work. It's still a nuclear base. And I mean, they pulled the missiles in the 90s. The B-52s are long gone. But it's now home to the B-2 bombers, which have nuclear capabilities. So SAC doesn't even exist anymore. Right. So that plays into a lot of which you talk about in your prior appearance on our show, a lot of how you were treated afterwards, but also like the ongoing security around this. Well, here's my question for you. When I read about this, I began to wonder if you were a Mark, if he had picked you out to make a friendship with you so that they could keep tabs on you. And eventually, once you've asked that question, deliver this information to you, is that ever crossed your mind? Or, or do you think more? No, it was, you know, it was a legitimate authentic interpersonal relationship, but when it came time to look for Toby, he was asked to sew it up with you. You know, I hadn't given that a lot of thought, but... I watch a lot of spy movies. I read a lot of Clancy, a lot of Ludlum. <laughs> in our conversations that we had, he was very interested in what I did in the, in the Air Force. Right. So he did two years in the Army, but didn't tell me what he did, but he wanted to hear all about what I did. It makes you wonder if he's feigning interest to endear himself to you and get an interpersonal relationship going. And what I know about this, again, I read a bunch of spy books and I watched the movie Spy Game and I watched them train people to into thinking that they're instigating the relationship when in fact it's the other way around and you're it's to obtain intelligence or keep tabs on somebody. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And because the recurring theme throughout your story, especially with uh, Incident at Devil's Den, is that there is influence being peddled and manipulated. And whether it's U.S. government, human, or extraterrestrial influence, everybody's being influenced 
The other thing that comes up consistently is a matter of trust, that nobody can trust any other person or being or entity or agency. That leads me to a, an earlier question I had. Do you think that the guy that was friends with Toby, was he somehow influenced either by governmental forces, human forces, or by extraterrestrial influence to suggest that camping spot to Toby? You know, that has been asked by a lot of people. Someone from To The Stars Academy that I had a friendship with for a while. And that, he really drilled down on that point. And that was, uh, how do you think your buddy came up with this place? And I said, well, he met some guy who gave him a, a brochure, like from, you know, from the kiosk. And he said, well, why would he pick this place six and a half hours away when Nobnoster State Park is directly across the street from the main gate of the base that you're stationed at? And I said, yeah, I know. And I, and I asked my friend that. And my friend said, well, yeah, sometimes isn't the trip as much a part of the adventure as uh, being there. And then he, he kind of caught me off guard and said, do you think he set you up? And I said, I don't think so. And I guess the true answer is, I, I don't know. And I think about E.T. working in concert with the United States government. I think, I think of that as an option, too. Right. And leading to the next question is, do you think this plateau, which is technically just outside of the park, I believe, still on federal land, but as you said, perhaps privately leased, do you think that plateau is some kind of agreed upon rendezvous place between our government and ET? I absolutely do. And that's not quite all conjecture in that I do have one personal experience yeah. to base that opinion on. Right. I believe so. Yeah. When you guys found that, and found the aerial photograph of it. I mean, I was stunned. I was really genuinely stunned. And I, and I, I put it on my Facebook page, and a guy, a friend of mine who's a, a landscaper down in Alabama, blew it up and said he could see the tractor marks. He said someone goes up there with a tractor and a brush hog and keeps that clear cut. And my question is, why would the federal government spend the time to pay a man or a woman to climb onto a tractor, to go up an unpaved dirt road, pulling what's called a brush hog. That's what he said they used, like a big lawnmower deck they pull behind a tractor. You know, it's a lot of gas to burn over 50 years. Yeah, it's every couple of weeks you're going to have to be up there doing that for that field, which is it's pretty big. Wow, it's interesting. But, you know, the other component of this, which people that hadn't heard you on the show before, is that there was almost a close encounters component to you guys, you and Toby going there, you guys felt compelled to take this trip, compelled to go to this place, like you were drawn to it, which that's another really fascinating part of it, I think. And it's like you talked about the details of forgetting things that were basic to both of the things that you were most interested in, right? The photography gear, some other things like that, right, that you left behind? Oh, photography was the whole purpose of me going. You know, I bought some new filters, I bought some fresh film, I had it all packed in my camera bag. I left it on my kitchen table. And I'm just not this inept. A neighbor lent me a nice camp lantern, a gallon of camp fuel, you know, fuel for the lantern, and a nice hand axe. Left all that stuff at home. Toby forgot half the stuff. But we had enough to get us through one night. Right. We took just enough. And no pictures were taken with Toby's Kodak Instamatic 126 camera? Never crossed our minds. Never crossed it. You know, we're sitting there on these air mattresses. Toby's got his backpack within reach and his camera's right there. And neither one of us thought to take a photograph. 
You know, and I had people write to me and say, my wife and I saw this giant UFO and I never thought to take my phone out and take a picture. Yeah, there's a couple of incidents in the Reckoning book where you say that people don't think to do it. And it's like you said, I know earlier you said it's not necessarily with regard to Devil's Den, it's not necessarily apathy, but there's a resignation that happens. Because we talk about on our show what we call paranormal apathy, which encompasses all kinds of cases. People wake up in the middle of the night, they see this something crazy, a ghost or whatever, and invariably they go back to bed. Nobody instigates an investigation or tries to get gear or get proof. It's almost like there's some sort of overarching control that is saying, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Just well, that, <laughs> yeah, just but go back to bed or whatever. No, and it, it happened in a very mundane, lackadaisical way to a very good friend of ours, Rob Christofferson from Our Strange Skies podcast. And I love the story because, you know, he, he's vast knowledge of UFOs and cases like this. And he was at work, I believe, as the story goes, talking about UFOs to a friend, just casually for fun with a coworker. They step outside for a break. I think the coworker uh, may have stepped outside for a smoke. Rob goes to join him. Rob doesn't smoke, but he was. Uh, they were just walking outside and they hanging out. Yeah, yeah, they're hanging out. But they see this large, hovering, floating egg in the sky, as he described it. Something egg-shaped, white, just in the sky, and they're like. Hey, look at that. That's that's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, all right, let's go back. <laughs> and I believe they had cell phones on them. And, and you just don't think to take a photo, even when you were just talking about seeing UFOs. And then you see one. You know, I don't even think I put this in the reckoning, but, you know, I had my wife, we were at the optometrist in 2015. And we came out of the optometrist office. Her eyes hadn't been dilated. Nothing wrong with her vision. She's wearing her glasses. And we walked to the parking lot, and here's this woman like this looking up in the sky. Well, I, you know, I look up, and here's this saucer. I mean, plain as day, silver metallic saucer. And I'm like, Sheila, look at that. And I point to my wife, and she's like, "What?" I'm like, "You don't, you don't see that?" She's like, "I don't see anything." And I asked, I asked this woman, this stranger. I said, "Madam, are you seeing what I'm seeing?" And she just looked at me and went. So she saw it, I saw it, my wife couldn't see it. Right, so that's something that comes up frequently on our show too, and that comes up, and that's where we get back to the everything is connected thing, because that is consistent with paranormal experiences, not just UFO experiences, but all kinds of experiences where different people in the same group are seeing something different. I mean, we just had a story a few episodes ago, I mean, it's been a couple months now, and it's a local story to where I live now in Greensboro, North Carolina, where four people saw this thing that at first they thought was a horse in a field and it turned into a whole paranormal interaction. Sorry, I didn't phrase that rightly. Three of them saw it and the other one didn't. And two of the three who saw it heard thundering hooves, but the one of those three didn't hear the hooves. You know, it's Rashomon. Everyone's getting a different takeaway. It begs the question, are these experiences within or without? How is that controlled? I can't quite figure out the thing that I've been puzzling over lately, especially with our last several shows. We just did one on a book called The Vertical Plane that is a mind-boggling time communication thing. I can't figure out if these different perceptions that people are having are related to our sense of reality or that our reality is so different from what we think it is that it's actually not that unusual that some people are seeing it and some aren't. It's just unusual to us because of how we see this construct. I'm not explaining it very well. But. No, you are. I think you're explaining it very well. And, and I agree with that. 
I don't think the human beings are ever capable of having a truly objective experience. Yeah, that's a better I mean, way. I'm it. looking at you on the screen and I'm seeing you the way you were a thousandth of a second ago because it takes that long for the image to breach my optic nerve and be interpreted. It all goes back to that consciousness thing too, I think. Chester Westerford here. When my cousin Bailey and I aren't running from monsters on our YouTube series, Westerford and Smith, we're probably listening to Astonishing Legends. Oh no! Hey Chester! Dracula's back! Oh no, I gotta run. Uh, let's get back to the show. There's a couple of things I want to ask you, uh, and one I asked you again the first time you were on the show, and I know that you're totally comfortable being asked this because I asked before about this. Folks that just say, okay, look, all of this, it's a cover-up for uh, sexual abuse or abuse situations. What's happening is they're dissociating. In fact, there was a story of these two girls, which is a really fascinating story that wrote into you, and I do want to talk about that in a minute, but there was an implication from a, I believe, a psychiatrist or a psychologist that they had had an encounter with each other and that this was all just a cover-up for that. Do you think there are some cases of sexual abuse of children where probably there is a dissociation and that is a, a thing, but do you think that this, these kinds of events that we're talking about coexist with that and that that's a separate reality? I can answer this best by uh, giving you an explanation. I was at the North Texas MUFON in Grapevine in 2018, about two months after my book came out, did a presentation for the group there. And uh, one of the attendees walked up to me and shook my hand. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Yeah, you know, shared cordialities. He mentioned that he was a, a practicing psychiatrist from Dallas, board certified psychiatrist. And since 2018, we've become good friends. You know, we'll hang out, we'll have a cocktail together if COVID will allow, and, you know, just become friends because he's got fascinating things to, to say. And my first question was, what's a board-certified psychiatrist doing at a uh, MUFON meeting? He's about my age, but he still runs a full caseload, sees a full load of patients every week. So he's active in his practice. And he says that 15 years ago, he's, now he's dealt a lot with genuine sexual abuse of children. He dealt a lot with people that would have stories like mine. And then he would research them, and he would actually use hypnosis and other things. And he says, I believe they are absolutely two distinct and separate phenomena. He says, sexual abuse is one thing, and it manifests differently than alien abduction. And he is a solid believer in alien abduction. You know, for the people that, want to, that, that say that, I'd say, you're entitled to, to that opinion. Of course, I respect that. Maybe research the literature a little bit, because there is some new literature coming out about sexual abuse in children. Yeah. He says there are two different phenomena. I believe them. Okay. This is an interesting point. We deal with this, or we come across this aspect, usually with more supernatural cases and ones that involve, you could say, dark entities or uh, shadow people even, or demonic entities of some kind, it seems to be the case where you hear this so often that there is some arrangement with the person that is interacting with these entities on the other side, and that you give them permission, if you do give them permission, say, playing around with a Ouija board, where you, you invite somebody in to communicate with you, but you don't say goodbye or close that channel, or you somehow invite these spirits into your place or even into yourself, that there has to be some 
tacit agreement that where you are allowing this, and we always call that the rules, and that you do seem to be, uh, in a lot of cases, not every case, there could be uh, vulnerability, and it could be, as we've said before, drug abuse, emotional abuse, some kind of weakness where they're allowed to kind of crack that armor and make their way in. But something that kind of connected with me is when you were talking about the monkey men coming in and, and when they first appeared, telling you, come and play with us. Your other friends will be there. Won't you come and play with us? That they were asking for permission up to a point. And then you speculated that, is it the age of the child? Why does there have to be any asking? Because they could certainly take you if they wanted to without your permission. But for some reason, they had to present to themselves as something benign and fun and come with us. It's, it's going to be a great play date, this recurring play date in outer space or on the ship. But they had to ask you. And then when you refused, that's when their mood soured. And they basically got fed up with asking you. But at some point, yeah, you were wondering, like, why do you have to ask at all? And what are your thoughts on that? I got all these letters from people. Of the 1,800 that I've had, there's a core of about 500 of those that are really very solid. It's not up to me to judge anyone's experience, but they sound solid to me. And it seems like people that have a one-on-one experience can just get taken. But people that are serially abducted as children seem to have that ask permission as a factor in that. Other thing that's interesting is one of the things I noted in common, and matter of fact, what I did was when people told me that they thought that they'd been abducted from an early age, I would ask them, did you have a strange dream that you experienced as a child that is as vivid in your mind today as it was the day that you had? And if they wrote to me and said, yes, I had this dream at age five, and I still can't get this dream out of my head. And I would ask them a couple of questions and say, well, can you tell me what you got for Christmas that year? Can you tell me where your family went on vacation? Can you tell me uh, two people that were at your birthday party that weren't related to you? And they can't answer any of those questions, or maybe one or two. But the point is that they all have this weird dream that stayed with them throughout a lifetime. Those tend to be people that I, I see that tell me that they've been serially abducted. And there seems to be a familial connection. And and this I, I wondered as well, because you, in a section of the book, talk about your other relatives, as you did at the beginning of the show, being from northern Arkansas, which, of course, is in the region of Devil's Den. Is there, other than your cousin, who unfortunately couldn't handle it at some point, is there, do you think, a familial connection? And is that related to DNA strains or something having to do with you being part of a family or the same gene pool or whatever it is, because it, that seems to come up a lot and that family members are taken or parents have the same experience and then their children eventually experience something like that. But your siblings didn't seem to. They didn't know what you were talking about. They didn't want to read the book or your eldest sister did not want to read the book. Yeah, my eldest sister did not want to read the book, did not want any part of the conversation. My sister in the middle I told her about the book in 2018 and said, look, I wrote this. I don't know if you remember this stuff. I mean, you know, you grew up just across the hall from my room, and I know that you heard me screaming my head off. Can we talk about that? And she got angry, and she said, you know, I remember the lights coming through the window, and we couldn't find you in the house. I don't want to talk about it any further. So that's struck a chord with me because obviously they weren't totally zapped out, out cold and just sleeping. 
that line to me says that they knew something weird was happening outside. They saw the lights coming through the windows, probably illuminated the house a bit. They went to look for you. You weren't in the house. That usually causes a great deal of alarm with a family. So they were conscious for part of it. But it doesn't seem like they talked about it or dealt with it because it must have happened several times, do you think? Yeah, I think it happened more than once. You know what else I think? And this is just conjecture. I don't know. I think they had their turns too. Hmm. I think one of the things that's really that's conveyed really well in The Reckoning is just how much fear you were dealing with. And I guess an, a certain amount of ineptitude to defend yourself. Your parents weren't fully on board. So you got into this whole experience where you went and got your father's firearm. You're out in the park with, I mean, this is just, as a father of a 12-year-old, this just scared me to death. You're out in the park, you discharged the weapon and quickly realized that that was a mistake. That story is just amazing. People should read the book. It's There's a little bit of levity to the idea of it, like, thank God you didn't get hurt, nothing happened. But I think what it conveys is just how upset you were about these monkey men continually coming. You've got to deal with it. You're trying to find a defense, and your idea is like, you know, I'm going to shoot them. When they come, I'm going to shoot them, and I'm going to protect myself. But then once you went through this experience with the firearm and it didn't do what you thought it was going to do, you put that aside, and then the next thing you're dealing with is the bayonet and your friend Ernie. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Ernie and that crossover there, because he and he wouldn't come over to your house, right? Because he was so freaked out about it as well. Oh, he well. would come over, but he wouldn't spend the night. Wouldn't spend the night, right. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't come for a sleepover. Yeah, Ernie and I were kind of opposites in a lot of ways, but we, we fit together real well. He went to a different school. We were the same age. I don't know if we were seven or eight. That line's blurry to me. But we met in the park and just were like best friends, you know, from, from go. You know, rode our bikes together, did all the stuff you do as kids. I was candid with him, and I told him about I'm being harassed by these monkeys at night. And he didn't laugh. And I, and I told him the whole story, and he was empathetic. And he says, you know, how can I help? What can we do? And we were kind of like talking this over aloud. And he's like, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I want to kill one. Nobody believes me, and if I kill one and it's dead on my floor in my room, there's your proof, right? You know, like a seven-year-old. And I think that anybody that has a child who doesn't think that kids go through their stuff is delusional. Delusional, yeah. <laughs> Your dad wasn't keeping it armed, but you knew where the bullets were and you knew where the weapon was. Sure. Behind the bed in a place you'd never expect. You wouldn't, I mean, there was this little cubbyhole-like thing in the back backboard of the bed, and uh, it was right there, along with a flashlight. I said, well, I'm going to put this under my pillow, and I'm going to shoot these things next time they come. And Ernie's like, how do you know how to shoot it? How do you know if you're going to miss? And I'm like, well, you know, good point, right? So uh, we agreed to meet one morning early at the park, about a block away from my house. And Ernie brought targets. You know, he went through all the trouble of taking cardboard and drawing these targets with figures on them. And uh, we did it in the early morning because I didn't like the night so much. So we did it like 6.30 a.m. We set these targets up at the base of these huge sycamore trees. And I got the gun out. And it was, you know, I had played with my toy pistol when I was a kid. But I didn't realize how hefty, how much big piece of machined metal is in your hand. And Ernie was insistent that I take the safety off. Of course, neither one of us knew that double-action revolvers don't have safeties. None of them do. Never have. 
and pull the trigger and they go bang. So we engaged in this back and forth tug of war. I've got a hold of the gun. He's got a hold of the gun. He's pulling, I'm pulling. And somewhere along the way, the thing discharges. <sighs> Scares us because it was, we'd heard guns go off on television before. And we thought that would be the decibel level of what to expect. It was a complete shock. And we, and we stood there for a minute. And I'm like, am I okay? Are you okay? By the grace of God, neither one of us was shot. I don't know where that bullet went. It went somewhere, 700 feet per second. Yeah. So I told Ernie, I said, I don't think this is a good idea. We're going to have to come up with a plan B. But I think it speaks to my level of frustration. And you know, that stayed with me. I listened to my kids and I was never quick to dismiss whatever they say. Yeah, because it's sad that you got to that point where you're like, okay, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And, you know, you haven't developed all your critical reasoning skills yet. You're just trying to bring a close to this nightmare situation that won't stop. It really conveys how vulnerable you felt and defenseless. And I think that comes through when you tell that part of the story. Yeah, Ernie was my best friend at the time. You know, that was my first introduction to grief, really. He, uh, he drowned that summer in Lake of the Ozarks. Oh, my goodness. That was a big loss. Sure, sure. There does seem to be, of course, kids, there's a special bond there because once you get older, of course, you're rational, you're more sophisticated. These things are nonsense. As your dad said, nothing in the sky can hurt you. There's no real monsters. But to a kid, they know better. There, there are monsters. And adults know that too, but they, of course, they can't admit that, not to other adults anyway. So there is a common bond between kids then there's sometimes there's parents, well, Scott and I talk about this a lot, and I, it's one of my favorite scenes, and I'm glad he he brought it up a few episodes ago, and I can't remember exactly what, but it's it, it comes from the Andy Griffith show, and it was an episode called Mr. McBeavy, and I just love this because, you know, Andy Griffith's the gentle dad who's uh, full of common sense, he's a pillar of good moral judgment, and so is Opie, and he's just a little boy, but he one day, the story goes that Opie is uh, walking along the road and he sees a guy in the treetops and he comes home and describes him as uh, he's wearing a silver hat and he has 12 extra hands and he, he blows smoke from his ears and he jingles when he walks as if he had like rings on his fingers and bells on his toes. But other than that, he's kind of normal. And he tells Andy and, and Barney and of course everybody and, and nobody really believes him the way he describes it. Of course, once you see who it really is, it is a real guy. He happens to be a telephone line repairman. And he has the silver hard hat and he has tools hanging off his belt that jingle and he walks in the trees. Yes. And he can do a trick where he would blow smoke into his hand and put it out of his ear, you know, hold it up to his ear, like just a classic entertain the kid. Trick. Sure. Right. And that leads back to uh, you, you talking about being a um, prosecutor and having to hear these horrible crimes. But and as Judge Judy said, if it doesn't make sense, if there's no reason to it, it can't be true. But we're not understanding the point of view of reason in that everything that was described is, is accurate. It's just that we're, we're not seeing it in the same context of a, of a little boy. And this is, but this is what I loved about the exchange in that uh, Barney and Andy are talking and Barney says, uh, well, yeah, but, you know, to Andy, how can you explain it all? And Andy says, well, I can't. And Barney says, well, do you believe in Mr. McBeavy? You know, the, the character in the trees says, no, 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 but I do believe in Opie. And that just really touches me in that. Yeah, it's just that I don't know what he saw, but I know my son doesn't lie. I know he's a, he's a good boy. If he saw something like that, it's got to be something similar that we're just not comprehending yet. 
So in any case, a little aside there, but this leads me to wondering about the other children that you saw once you were taken aboard in kind of that round circular room, which was basically like a daycare, but seemingly with a different purpose. And you may not have the answer for this, but that's where you first meet Sue, what you described later as as some sort of alien-human hybrid, more human-like, with possibly Asian features. That reminded you of your neighbor. I'm giving a little backstory here for people who hadn't read Incident at Devil's Den first. She's described in that book. But it reminded you of your old neighbor who was a kind woman who uh, was a widower living by herself. And there was some, that was probably the closest thing to what she looked like that you could comprehend. But she was kind of in charge of this daycare of other kids that have also been abducted, where the monkeys took you for playtime. So my question is, did you have any kind of idea why you were collected and what these playtime get-togethers were all about? Sue had you put together these what looked like colored tiles or, you know, either dominoes or mahjong tiles, something like that, that were colored. And again, describing it for our listeners, you had to put them in certain order. There were little tasks with it. And she was encouraging if you didn't do well or she were kind of rewarded if you did well and put them together the way you're supposed to. And the reward, which I couldn't understand, is she slid open a panel. It was like you could see stars or pinpoints of light. And it didn't make sense to me. It's like, well, wouldn't a reward be a treat? But you were not fed anything there. There was no ice cream, no beverages. That was your reward is just to see this panel with the pinpoints of light, which you thought might be stars. What do you think was the purpose of those playtimes and what that reward was? You know, the purpose, I would really love to know. I can tell you this. I had no less than 30 people write to me and say, oh, yeah, I was in that room. As a matter of fact, there's a new author out. Her name is Deb Cobble, K-A-U-B-L-E. We're hoping to interview her sometime in the future. She's an amazing woman. Okay. I'm a member of Von Smith's Cyril Group. I live in Dallas. They have events in L.A. every now and then, a Christmas party every year. I try to fly out every year. We sat together and had dinner in 2019. She's like, you know, they took you as a kid, huh? I said, yeah. She said, yeah, they took me too. And I didn't put this in the first book. She says, did they have you try to move stuff with your mind? And I'm like, yeah, I had a little blue cube. And she's like, yeah, I had a, I forget, pyramid, I think. You know, what color was yours? Mine was blue. What color was yours? Mine was red. She describes the exact same identical experience that I had that I hadn't published or said to anyone. And that was we were sitting like cross-legged on the floor with this cube or this object in front of us. Everybody had something different. And the weird thing was, well, I should mention too, everyone communicates telepathic, which I think worked great for kids. I don't think it would work well for adults, but for kids, it worked great. And the second thing was these objects that they give us, Sue would give us to move with our minds, this thing had no mass. I mean, I could pick it up, I could let go of it, it would fall to the ground. But when I picked it up, it didn't weigh anything. And I sat it down in front of me, and we were supposed to concentrate on it and make it move. And I was getting really frustrated that I couldn't make my, as the other kids were doing. And one day I did it and it moved. I mean, it kind of flew across the room like four feet. And Sue came over and gave me high praise, you know, rubbed my back and, oh my gosh, you did such a good job. Deb had the exact same experience. Mm. Yeah, you, sh- you should have Deb on. You really should. She's an amazing woman. You'll like her. Do you think that there's any kind of 
residual telepathy that happens with abductees, because that was also an interesting instance. I think you talk about being in a bookstore with your wife. She's off shopping. You're looking at the half-price bookshelf, and a kind of a disheveled woman in her 60s comes up to you and says, you're one of them, aren't you? They took you as a kid, didn't they? And she's obviously not, doesn't look like, you know, an alien-human hybrid, a very normal-looking woman. How do you think she knew that? I had no idea, but I'd sure love to know. This was at Barnes & Noble in Chicago, near Christmas time. And I'm at the half-price book rack, because I'm cheap. And, <laughs> you know, she comes in, and she's wearing the cheap glasses, and she looks maybe homeless. She walked up to me, and we made eye contact. And she says, you're one of them. We used to take you when you were a little boy. I was stunned, and I'm like, ma'am, how do you know that? And she just turned around and walked away, and she's gone in the crowd. I, I don't get that. You know, the question, what were they taking us? What were they doing to us? What, were they training us for something? Were they? I don't know. I don't have a clue. Did your parents have any experiences? And also, did you ever tell them about the incident with the gun? Or, um... Oh, no. Good Lord, no. <laughs> yeah. Never. Yeah. They never found that out their whole lives. Never found that out their whole lives. Okay, and so what about, did you, when, when these things were going on, was there ever any indication from either of your parents that they, growing up, that they had had any kinds of experiences? You know, my folks were kind of simple people. They grew up on a farm in northern Arkansas. My dad dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He drove a truck for a living. My mother dropped out of school in the eighth grade, although she did go back and get her GED at age 60. I'm very proud of her. So there was a little less level of sophistication. I was never really sure how to bring up the subject. Now, my dad was absolutely just really, really interested in UFOs. I mean, if we were watching television and there was a news story about a UFO in Cleveland or something, he would, you know, immediately, everybody shut up, I want to hear this. And if there was something outside or something unusual, he'd be all over it. But when you ask him, you know, are those flying saucers? No, 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 that's stuff from the Soviets. That's all, that's all misinformation from the Soviets. So no, I think he knew. I think he knew at some level that there was something there, but didn't want to admit it, at least not to me, not to his children. I don't know of anyone else in the family that had any experiences. Because again, we were kind of isolated in St. Louis. The only relatives we really saw were my grandparents once or twice, and my aunt and uncle that were. Gerald's parents. And they, they took it a lot differently, of course, being fundamentally religious, the way they deal with it. And you, you still see, I was thinking about this this morning, that is another line of thought with a lot of researchers is that there is a religious, spiritual, and demonic angle to ETs, aliens, and their agenda, and that what people might be seeing when they get abducted is some kind of a demonic influence or interaction or spirit oppression. Anybody come to you with that hypothesis? Well, I've, I've heard a couple of people say they're demonic, uh, this and that, but the only person I thought that was very credible was one person from To The Stars Academy who came to visit me in 2018. There was not Lou Elizondo, who I'm very candid about visiting me, but this person, and I promised not to use his name, he was very kind to me, I won't, won't use his name, but he said to me, he says, you know there's a spiritual element to all this. And I said, no, I'm, I've never, never seen that. I've kind of rebelled against the idea, actually. I, don't, I see it as Newtonian physics, kind of a materialistic kind of way. 
And he's like, no, I, he says, well, you know, everybody has their own. But this was a very well-educated, very intelligent man. He had an experience that was so profound that he ended up in his spare time completing a master's in divinity. Now, the second person, there is a second person who's very credible. His name is Chris Bledsoe. And Chris Bledsoe, if you go online, there's an artist by the name of Doug Auld, A-L-U-D. And Doug Auld has a painting of the white lady. Oh, you mentioned him in your book. Yes. When you say painting of the, the white lady, is that somebody like Sue? And just for again, for our listeners to refresh their memories, uh, Sue was the one who was very emotionally caring about you, seemed to be some kind of alien-human hybrid, as she, I guess she claimed herself, but was in charge of the, the daycare on board the ship and also visited you later, which we're going to talk about here because that's going to lead to our mind-blowing finale, I guess, for this episode. But when you say the, the white lady in the painting, is that something like that? Or what, what was he talking about, about the white lady? Chris Bledsoe, uh, Doug are friends. I don't think that's any secret. I'm not telling anything that you wouldn't, wouldn't want told. The white lady was a vision by Chris Bledsoe. Uh, one of the anecdotes at the end of the book, which is, uh, by the way, for folks that you need to first get yourself a copy of Incident at Devil's Den. And I got to say, Terry, that thank you so much for mentioning us oh, in yes. the acknowledgments of your second book here, The Reckoning, and also for putting us in a caption. I don't think I've ever been captioned before. I, I got a, as kind of, I got personal, huge thrills out of seeing our show and our names in print. So that was rare. And thank you so much for, for thinking of us. It's very generous of you. Well, you know, I really appreciate what you guys did. You guys found the campsite. Yeah. I mean, you found this spot. I mean, I, I thought it'd be covered with 40-year-olds. And the fact that it's not covered with trees is huge. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge part of the story. Scott's a bulldog about that. In fact, I, I task him when I go to build the web page just to keep him occupied while he's pinging me like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? Have him go investigate something on a map and anything with Google Earth and he's on it like that. So, <laughs> but I just thought like, I'll bet we can find this place with the description of where they, where they walk. And it, it turns out it wasn't overgrown. And if you do the Google Earth tilting, you can really see the elevation a little bit on that plateau. Yes. Yeah. And also, and when I first sent you those, Terry, remember too, we had you know, because Google Earth also has the historical satellite images and you can hit that timeline and go back. So you can go back to the first, I mean, the, the images, the resolution isn't as good, but you can see that it was that way, Yeah, way back in the in the 70s and 80s as well. It's like you said, it's been being maintained like your landscaping. Yeah, weirdly, it's being mowed for some unknown reason out in the middle of nowhere. But I was going to say, continuing on, the second thing people need to do, all of our listeners, well, as we said at the top of the show, we were just a little hesitant because we didn't know how people were going to react. We certainly don't want any uh, blowback on yourself. Our listener base is mostly all very conscientious and decent people. Very few trolls. There are a few. But if they don't believe it, they're at least accepting of it. They'll listen to it. They may disagree and they'll tell us so, but they're accepting of it. So we didn't know how it played out, but it, it's become one of our most popular shows and one that when we do like informal polls of like what's freaked you out the most out of all the astonishing legends episodes our base of listeners will usually say things like well it's it's shadow people it's the black eyed kids and it's terry lovelace because when you think about it not to go too much of a tangent but scott and I always wonder like well what's really scary for halloween what 
what ideas and and stories can we tell and you know that are really going to uh, give people their money's worth for the spooky season and over the years we've developed kind of a philosophy about it and that you know i've said this before in the show it's some things will scare people in that if it's a haunted house or a haunted location or maybe the site of something a uh, horrific happening but usually a haunted location People say, well, that's very scary. That that place is it's spooky and, and creepy. And but I don't have to worry about it because I'll never go there. Or in Scott's case, we may never go back to Sally House. People won't go back to Greyfriars Kirkyard. Just the philosophy of it and the psychology of it, what scares people in that it is a horror or a torment that you don't have to go to, it comes to you. And so there you have the idea of the black-eyed kids. They'd show up wherever, and it doesn't matter where you are. You could be in a, a gated community. Somehow they show up. And also abduction. It just comes to you. It, it finds you if for some reason you're somehow slated to be chosen. It's going to happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that scares people to the core. Anyway, so I want to get that in. But yeah, the second thing that people need to do is pick this book up, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Because not only do you get updates on everything we've talked about in the, the first interview, which was fascinating and a great recap, and it leads to a mind blow, some mind-blowing conclusions, but there's also the second half of the book are just super compelling and interesting and disturbing and some uplifting stories from people who have emailed you their stories and want their tales to be told. And just, yeah, if you like this kind of thing or you're fascinated by it, it's really a treasure trove, and that's the other half of the book. The latter half of the book are are these stories from people that will just make you scratch your head and just wonder, what is going on out there? That's very humbling. I'll tell you, it's a privilege to have somebody share this information. A lot of people wrote to me and said, I've never shared this with another human being. So I really appreciate that. And I got, there are some cool stories there. I did everything I could to vet these stories, including telephone conferences and uh, when you get these stories emailed to you, and certainly we we do all the time, so many that we'll try and read each one, skim them, and some of them are, you don't even know what to say or respond with. But when you get stories like that, I was noticing in the book, you said, yeah, some of them seem to be more credible than others. Some you try to vet and you can you can do that better than some other stories or people that tell them. But when you get a story, what makes you believe it or not believe it? Great question. I love it. I'm kind of a data guy. I'm not as good as David Politis, but I kind of keep track of these things. And that's why I say I got a core of about 500 that are just really, really good. One of the commonalities that I see among stories that I think are particularly good is the disclaimer in the first paragraph. People will start, and I bet money you've seen this, people will start with, please don't think I'm crazy. I wasn't drinking at the time. I didn't do drugs. And it seems like it's always that first paragraph. And then they, they, they go off and they tell me the most amazing stories. And then they say, thank you. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's pretty much our template as well when we get them. I would say for myself, and it's not to, to put anybody down, but the times that I've heard a story that I was suspicious about, let's say, were ones that are not so much UFO encounters. And, and I don't think we've had an, an abduction story emailed to us yet. Not one that I can remember, or one that was specifically about abduction. But the ones that are usually ghost stories, and it's a little bit too fantastical in that the third time I called out to the ventriloquist dummy, and then it animated itself, and it's like, okay, that's a little beyond what we usually hear or experience ourselves from people we think are credible. It's too much. 
Now, having said that, when you hear some of these stories that, or if you pick up Devil's Den, The Reckoning, and you get to the the second half of the book and you hear all these accounts, I think the ones you've chosen are, are excellent. And they're just something that is, it's outrageous in another way and not a fictional way where somebody, like I said, I get suspicious when it seems like somebody's trying to embellish a story because they think that's really going to grab you, that the crazier it is, it's going to be more believable. But if you've studied a little bit of the paranormal, you'll know that that doesn't usually happen. It's not like you see in the movies where it's something crazy. On the other hand, when you read these stories, they're just so weird. And it goes back to a case that I don't want to describe here on the show because it is pretty sensitive, but it happens to be about the abuse of a young girl who tells this kind of outrageous tale. And you think like, that's, she's making this up. A jury's not going to buy this. And then, like Mr. McBeavy, you come back to find out what really happened and the adults involved. And it's like, yeah, she described it exactly, pretty much as truthfully as she saw it. And it was true, but you didn't have the context for it. So with these stories that people tell you about, they're some of the most outrageous things that if you put in a movie, people would say, oh, come on, that's baloney. You're making this up. If it was a ghost story, they're ready to believe it. UFOs, they're not going to make that leap. Or in this, it's like, it's just so weird. And the details are so, not fantastical, but just bizarre that it is high strangeness, but it's cohesive and it makes sense that those to me ring true. Yeah, you know, to me, there's a, there's a thread of empathy in there too. I mean, I, yeah. I felt there were things I said in The Reckoning I didn't say in Incident of Devil's Den because I thought, you know, people, it's just too much. It's just right. too much. Most of these stories start off with kind of a, just a, a broad, this is what happened. And then when I email them back, I get more details. Then I get a cohesive story that makes sense. I mean, it's a privilege. Hey, how's that Bluetooth speaker you got from Bespoke Post for your convertible uh, treating you? You know what? It sounds so good and it's so convenient. I think I might wait a while longer to get the uh, OEM radio fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of amazing how big of a sound you can get out of them. And Bespoke Post always goes to great lengths to source the best items at great prices. But their secret isn't just top-notch gear, because you start off taking a quiz at boxofawesome.com, and your answers help them pick the right box of awesome for you. So you're bound to get something that fits your style and your budget, and a great gift to yourself that you can really use. That's certainly been our experience, and, and now we're excited because Bespoke Post's fall and winter lineup has the most awesome boxes of seasonal must-have goods to help you live your best life. Well, thank you, Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you're not wrong because Bespoke Post has a lot of our favorite things. Like, I really love the uh, Flicker personal cement fireplace that comes with the flame box. Have you seen that? No, not yet. <laughs> well, Bespoke Post has got any taste covered, no matter what you're into. From autumn craft beers to cozy threads, clothing, and camping gear essentials, Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. And it's such a fun rabbit hole just to browse all the stuff on their website. They have really popular collections for women, too. Well, like some things that are trending are the Dulce Box with a Mexican-inspired traditional hot chocolate setup Ooh. or the Nocturne Clutch with a bottle of Caswell Massey Eau de Toilette in the After Hours Box. Nice. Well, you can't really go wrong with any of it for yourself or as a unique gift for someone special. And to get started, take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. And they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up, and you can skip a month or cancel at any time. 
Each box only costs 45 bucks, but has over $70 worth of gear inside. Plus, with each box of awesome, you're supporting small business. 90% of everything that comes in your box of awesome is from a small up-and-coming brand. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code AL at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code AL, for 20% off your first box. Okay, here's something I've been wondering for a while. Uh, do you have any banking horror stories? <laughs> About banking? Well, as a matter yeah. of fact, I do. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh. So once when I was looking for a new apartment, I found one that I thought was... Hi, I'm Jack. When I'm not going down Wikipedia rabbit holes, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, let's maybe steer the conversation back, I guess, leading up to the most, I don't know, significant conclusions and implications here. And that is what's going on with the ET presence itself, which we talked about a lot in our first interview with you. But in this case, some of the beings and the more detailed descriptions I found really interesting and made connections with, like, again, talking about Sue, who was the, the leader of the, I guess, the alien daycare, if you want to call it that seemed to have an assistant who was Jenny, Jenny. who had all white eyes, completely Just white Just the opposite eyes. the black eyed kids. It was nothing but yeah. Slara. And when I remember her face, I never remember it clearly. It's mm. always kind of blurred. And, you know, she was in and out of the dress that she wore was not of this era. I mean, it was what little girls wore in the 40s or something. And then the white socks and the, but she was just, she was creepy. I don't know. Yeah. Now that is a connection that I make. Like you said, that's a total description of a black eyed kid as often being wearing dress that is not contemporary, not of the era, 50 years too old and showing up and not knowing current terminology. Scott and I are, one of our favorite lines from uh, David Weatherly's book is one uh, pair of kids show up and a lot of times they ask to use the telephone and that's how they gain access and entry into your place. And again, that involves permission to come inside and you have to give it to them. Otherwise they don't seem to enter, but once you do, they're really hard to get rid of. And then you end up with like a, a bunch of post-traumatic side effects, bad luck, all kinds of things happening to you. If you do, that's been reported. But a pair of kids came to the door and asked to use the telegraph. Maybe we use your telegraph. You need to let us in. You have to let us in. We need to use that telegraph. And it's like, what? Are you joking? But they don't seem to know what time they're in. Another case where uh, this also happened in Texas, that's in his book. These two kids show up and as a guy is carting groceries from his truck into the house. And they said, is it food time yet? If it's food time, you need to let us in. And it's like, who says food time? <laughs> Nobody says food. No, it, it, it's like they have an idea that's vague. Maybe they they got it in an alien pamphlet. So you're so you find yourself on Earth. Here's how to behave, and it's not totally correct. But they had the all black eyes. The one anecdote I remember was a character with all white eyes, and it's got refresh my memory here. It, it was a case where I think somebody saw a black eyed person or kid, and got a horrible bad shill, very bad juju about that, and then a person with all white eyes shows up and it looks like they are there to corral the black-eyed person. Oh, that wasn't one of the stories. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, but I can't remember. Yeah, totally um, evident of like the black-eyed being bad, the white-eyed person or creature showing up to chase down or corral or arrest maybe the black-eyed person, but the, the second person had all white 
eyes, no pupils. It's amazing. It just makes you wonder, what's the connection there to anything kind of spiritual or, or ET? But what was then Jenny's purpose if Sue was so affectionate and caring and understanding and compassionate, but Jenny was really a blank slate and creepy and with the all-white eyes? You maybe alluded to that maybe she was an assistant of some kind. But we never saw her do a thing. I don't require her doing a thing. She carried a jump rope. I never saw a jump rope. She carried a jump rope with her. And she was just there. Wow. So, Terry, one aspect I, I think I may have glossed over in asking you about, what do you think the panel with the lights behind it represented? The thought that came to me was that it was some kind of psychogenic stimulant or something that, well, you got this puzzle right. Here's your reward. She slides the shade back and you see these pinpoints of light. But you didn't say they seemed to be stars or anything. That no, it was... I mean, they didn't twinkle right. like stars do. I mean, I'm a child. I, I don't know. I thought it was like some type of display. I thought it was something that was manufactured. But then later on, in the do- as an adult, I, I think I realized that where we were in this domed room was probably not on Earth. I think we were transported to some ship that was somewhere God knows where. Right. And I think that's the point she wanted us to know, maybe not then, but to know someday. You will meet Sue later on as an adult in your life in several different instances. And I think she shows up, as you said, uh, thanks for the memories, where she, as a gift for being their lab rat for a while, she lets you in on an episode that was basically a bit of a mystery to you, riding your motorcycle and experiencing missing time, which we covered your first interview. Yeah, she sure did. Did you notice before these encounters as an adult later on in life, that she seemed to only have four long fingers. You know, I did, but I don't think I ever dwelled on it. You know, the same way that she had a a bulbous back to her head. Right. It was different, but it wasn't something I dwelled on. And I think I say this in the book, I hope I do, and that was that I had this odd affection for her. Yes. Not in a romantic way, but in a maternal way. I'm not sure where that comes from and what the purpose of that is. Yeah. If you ever stopped to think that you might be biologically related? I have. I mean, I got a DNA test that shows that my family's pretty much where they said they came from, you know. Eastern European, nothing surprising. Yeah. And English, then Ireland, and to the United States. You didn't really talk about this in the second book here, but in the first one, it was a major component and something I thought was super compelling because you can see it as evidence. The implants that you had received that were under the skin without any breaks in the skin, they just appeared and then they disappeared. Did you ever get any more information about what those were for other than possibly just obviously tracking you? What was the purpose of the of the implants? Did you did you find out more about that? I think they were obviously to track me, like you said. Right. I really don't have a clue other than that. You know, I've talked to so many people. I talked to Whitley Strieber, who's had implants like mine, and we're all left with that puzzle. I've never met anyone who could say, well, I know what that's all about. It's right. for this or that. I think tracking is probably spot on, but other than that, I don't have a clue. Well, the reason I ask is that your case is significant, remarkable, and unique in that you got a lot of feedback, which most people don't in their cases. Usually it's just a mystery. They don't know what what was done to them. They might have a physical ailment later on, but it remains more of a mystery other than usual common tropes where sometimes women will be shown 
infants and not really told anything, but they get the impression that that was their baby that was uh, implanted. Yeah. And taken from them. And it's a hybrid. In your case, though, with the aid of Sue slash Betty, and you can explain that she started with the goofy wig and the bulbous head. She looked more like Betty Rubble to you. She did look like Betty Rubble. I mean, that was just a crazy thing that popped into my head. Yeah. But she hadn't aged a day. Mm. For some reason, I felt it appropriate to change her name to, to Betty. <laughs> right. I mean, I kind of differentiate Sue from the past and Betty from the present. Well, let's talk about then Sue and as we wrap up here. Your link to this knowledge and what is possibly going on with all of this, because that is the question. What's happening here? What's the purpose? What's the agenda? in that you think that because Sue slash Betty is more of an intermediary and more empathetic to our human condition because she is half human, that she's allowed to tell you some things. Is that correct? Like she's allowed to tell you what some of the agendas are going on. That, that, that is correct. And in the first book, I said there were some things that she told me that I wasn't going to discuss because I don't want to turn off the reader. I don't want them to say, oh, yeah, right. I mean, I think there's kind of a limit to what you can expect the reader to accept. And I felt like I didn't want to pass that threshold and ruin my credibility. But yeah, Sue revealed several things to me, and they're all on page 133. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> the four-finger description is something I've heard, and I think a lot of people who, who've studied UFO stories have heard before. Most significantly, I was watching an old documentary, shot an old video, three-quarter-inch videotape, I think, where this artist had a friend who was an Army nurse and she claimed that at this army base, an, an alien was brought in, deceased, but brought in for an autopsy. And there was a sheet over it. And of course, there's high security, but an emergency team to, I think, either try and restore its life or perform an autopsy as soon as possible. She said she saw a hand slip out from under the sheet, and there were four long, very long fingers, no thumb. And then, of course, my thought was like, well, that doesn't make evolutionary sense. Your opposable thumb is built everything we know. But here's the interesting point. She said at the end of the fingers were tiny suction cups. Yes. Yeah. So something that you could grip with if you only had four fingers and no thumb. I have a drawing that I made some years ago. And I think I know that story. I think that story goes back to Roswell, doesn't it? Yeah, possibly. It was so long ago. I, I made notes and I, I, I can't remember it. But the gentleman that was on, on camera, he swears by it that, of course, his, his good friend, this army nurse, had sworn that she saw this. And then the other thing is that when they did start cutting into it, the, the smell was so horrible, it drove all the doctors out for a minute before they could, they could clear the air. So those are the two significant things I remember from that segment. But yeah, that image in my mind really stuck with the four long fingers that at first don't make sense. But if you can grip with those in some way, then yeah, you can accomplish what we can with five fingers. Yeah. We're making a conclusion that four long fingers articulate the same way ours do. Theirs may be able to go backward or sideways or who knows. I mean, right. just conjecture, but... Certainly. Well, let's talk a little bit about what Sue told you about physiology first as a kid, and then we'll lead into some of the more bombshell admissions she makes, which we'll all have us uh, wondering. But you said that when you were younger, she was able to show you, you're talking about telepathy. I think this is the, the passage where she's trying to explain to you yes. how advanced beings communicate in that telepathy is you don't need language it comes before language you can express things more clearly and they're not lost in words or interpretation it's more direct it's more efficient but you need to be 
advanced and in control of your your mental faculties a lot more. I had a question here that because it, it reminded me of something we've talked about before, and that she was able to show you a picture of the inside of your head from the top down. That's right. And you said that there's something in the kind of the center of your brain that looked like a bean. It looked like a bean. That's right. And she says, that's where your thoughts originate. Okay. You know, this whole life from me asking her, why can't yeah. we talk like this at home? Right. And she says, you're not, because you're not ready. And I thought, oh boy, I can't wait till I'm nine. You know, <laughs> I think she meant species wise, we're not, we're not ready. Well, I was going to ask you, has anybody mentioned to you or referenced the pineal gland? Yes. Many people wrote to me and said that there's a pineal gland that's right in the center by the hippocampus. Yeah. Of course, if you look it up on WebMD, they'll just say, well, it produces melatonin. But I believe there's some theories that the ancients used to trepan your skull, cut a hole into it, pierce that with a long, thin metal rod or needle, which caused it to scar, and that gave you a little bit of telepathic powers. But you know, this woman from Indiana sent me a bunch of pictures of base reliefs done on rock and statues of men or women, I don't remember, holding what looked like a pine cone. Mm. And she said that that's actually pineal gland. Right. Maybe so, maybe not. I don't know. What's interesting is we get to a conclusion here that Sue is letting you in on a lot of information. And what I loved about the reckoning here is that you get some answers I desperately had after finishing <laughs> Incident at Devil's Den. And where she lays down a lot of this knowledge, I believe, is was that in a trip to the dark side of the moon? It was, in 1987, okay. when I was abducted from a motorcycle, when I had that period of missing time. She gave me that. In October 2017, she gave me that memory back. Again, from a, a view from overhead of... My bike being there, I'm standing next to my bike on this gravel road in the middle of nowhere, a thousand acres of corn, and I've got my helmet in my hand, and here's this disc over the cornfield to my left, and it just kind of floats over to the road and drops down to about five feet above the surface of the road, and a ramp goes down. I have no fear. I'm like, oh, right on time. Here we go. And uh, the door opened. I walked up the ramp. I met... I met Betty, who I knew as Sue then. I didn't know her as Betty until 2017. This happened in 1987. And we sat together, and that's when we went to the dark side of the moon. And I know that's, that's an awful hard thing to, to believe. <laughs> well, the description just, it sounds, uh, it's amazing. I mean, to, just, to, just to experience. But it was there, though, that she told you about the agreement as you, as you list it in the book? That's right. She said, shortly before you were born, there was an agreement made. Because in the end of Incident at Devil's Den, I said there are three possibilities. Either we're working shoulder and shoulder in concert with them, or we're in a quid pro quo type relationship where they're giving us something in exchange for something, or they're here and they do what they want to do, and we don't have any control over them whatsoever. And I think there's probably a fourth possibility, and that is there are two separate factions here at odds with one another. Maybe each one seeking supremacy. I don't know. But yeah, supposedly there was an agreement shortly before my birth. I did some research on that. And there is uh, a lot of people believe that Eisenhower had a daughter. Yeah, I've heard that. A daughter or granddaughter? I don't remember which. Name. Oh, it could be a granddaughter. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Who stated she knew that? She knew that as a fact. <laughs> what generated the most email out of all of this 
was when I saw the I saw a mushroom shaped building which you said was a kilometer and a half high, which is a little more than a mile. Right. Man, I got emails about that. I bet yeah. I got fifty emails <laughs> from people who said, I know that building. Oh. Oh really? I know that building. That's interesting. I have a, a businessman from Dallas who I can't name, unfortunately, but businessman from Dallas said that he was just, as a kid, he was obsessed with drawing that. And he drew it as a child, and he knew it was from Mars when he was a kid. Wow. Well, there's a couple of things I want to quickly say about that because it ties in, and, and there's a bigger picture here. When you're describing this, this is basically in your trip to the moon on, on the other side of the dark side of the moon. There's basically a city laid out, a hodgepodge of buildings with no streets or roads, of course, but there's construction equipment. It looks like there's a mining operation, but a lot of buildings of different shapes and sizes, and one that is massive, nearly a mile mile high. And you were told by Betty, uh, why don't you tell us what Betty explained what was going on on the moon? Because you did ask her, like, what's happening down there? I did. I asked her who was here. And she told me that the moon is an artificial vessel. Mm-hmm. And she says, if you want proof of that, just look at the maps of the moon and look at the shallowness of the crater. She said, this is solid material underneath. And it was made long before there was mankind, then abandoned for some time. And then the reptilians took it over. And they're there now. And they're aggressive and territorial, according to her. But she said that there are humans there. They've been there a long time, and that many species of aliens come there. And she said they come there for the rocks. That's when she said helium-3. And I had to Google helium-3 to finally figure out what it was. She said it was something to do with energy. But helium-3 is very a very rare thing on planet Earth, but on the moon it's plentiful. And there's a gas trapped inside these rocks. And they crush these rocks and extract the helium-3, and it can make fission or fusion, I'm not sure which, reactor, and there is no waste. There is no waste. I don't know what the output is, just something benign, water or oxygen or something. Nothing radioactive, nothing that can harm it. That'd be a pretty valuable thing to have. Scott might know the figures here, but I've, I've heard it thousands of times more expensive than diamonds or you know pound for pound, and that it's one cubic yard would be worth a trillion dollars here on Earth. There's some outrageous exchange figure and that that's how rare and valuable it is real quick i was just going to say i'm just quickly looking it up while we're talking and this is a european space agency just a paragraph and a search results return right here unlike earth which is protected by its magnetic field the moon has been bombarded with large quantities of helium-3 by the solar wind it is thought that this isotope could provide safer nuclear energy in a fusion reactor since it is not radioactive and would not produce dangerous waste products. So that complies exactly with what you are describing, Terry, that you weren't even sure how to describe it, but this information that you're getting falls right in line with what we can search up about it right here on the internet right now. Yeah. So That, that kind of matches the uptick in uh, activity to get to the moon. I mean, India, mm-hmm. Japan, Russia, I mean, everybody wants to go to the moon. Right. I just want to mention something to you. I, I briefly brought it up before we started recording and we were just chatting. In that this also ties in with what I'd heard, I believe, in the the first time I'd heard Lori Williams, our, our uh, remote viewing sensei, or for Scott and I, protege of you know, renowned remote viewer Lynn Buchanan, who was her mentor, 
we talk about her a lot on the show, but she was being interviewed by Connie Willis. And I bring this up. We were recording late one night when we were both living in the same town, listening to Coast to Coast. And I'd never heard of Lori before, but she starts laying out this story of what's on the dark side of the moon and on Mars. And it kind of blew my mind. Little I know after reading your book, it would blow my mind a second time. But what she said, what's not her remote viewing, but I believe their upper echelon of advanced her black viewers. belt. She has like these team <laughs> of amazing people. Yeah, exactly. That they had viewed on the moon. There are facilities there that are above ground, below ground. There is a an abandoned or crashed ship, alien spaceship there. But below ground are several levels and they can see people that look humanoid working and living there at these various levels. Some maybe look more human than others, but some are just kind of humanoid. The other interesting thing is that there's another race of aliens, which are huge, massive, very large aliens, and they were indifferent to us. They don't want to interfere. They don't care about us at all. They're just there to mine whatever they're mining. And I didn't hear what at the time. And this would be now four or five years ago. Lori shared this on Coast to Coast years and years ago. Yeah. yeah. Just that there's another race that are there. They're doing their mining operations. And as long as we leave them alone, they, they won't annihilate us or, or bother with us. But we have some other alien-human cooperation going on on the moon. What was viewed on Mars, it, this was not in your book or referenced, but it's probably connected. There were facilities underground that seemed very dormant, and there were humans or humanoids in a suspended animation underneath the surface of Mars waiting for something or to be reactivated or just even like interstellar. You're just in a extended hypersleep until somebody comes and wakes you up. That's what they saw along with a large... Or the ship's computer killed you. <laughs> yeah, the HAL. 2000. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that and, uh, and there's an array of obelisks on Mars in a circle, which is meant to be some kind of antenna array. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that, see if you... Well, I, I wish I knew something about Mars. I mean, yeah. uh, it's a shame I can't contact her and uh, see if she's still questions. You know, I used a ghost box. Mm-hmm. A program on my phone. It's an app. It's cheap. 10 bucks or something called Necrophonics. I asked to speak to Betty. It was me and a, and a friend who's a, a psychic here in Texas. She's very good. She said, why don't you ask to talk to Betty? And I did. We were in a Zoom meeting. I saw an orb dart across my face. And at her house, there were orbs all over the place. We got, hi, Terry. I mean, nothing else of any substance, but I thought it was kind of cool. What you were talking about with the moon and the cities on the moon and the trip to the moon and what we're about to talk about now, I can tell really stimulate people's imaginations, you could say, because in the Kindle edition, you can see what people have highlighted the most. Oh, yeah. And this is it. <laughs> These, and it's under your reptilians and broken promises section here or chapter. So basically, you, you've you known this before. You've mentioned it in our first interview that there are several races of aliens you have the insectoid, praying mantis-type leaders, or the, the more advanced aliens. The things I saw on the ship that had that medical vibe to them. Right. But here's something that's extremely controversial, and people roll their eyes and tear their hair out when they hear reptilian aliens, because it's become such a joke meme and trope. Also, it has to do with the people who promote that agenda or that conspiracy theory that they're replacing our world leaders but in your experience, Betty informed you about 
what their agenda really is and if they exist. She gave me four revelations. Before my experiences with Betty since 2017, I would have thought these were all just conspiratorial, but from based on our conversation, and I think I back I back it up with other because reptilians and broken promises is this is this is in that same chapter. I failed to grasp the enormity of her statement statements at the time. She had just confirmed one, the existence of a secret space program. She said the Apollo missions were um, public face, a nation face for the for the space program. And there is a separate secret space program. Two, that extraterrestrials and human beings live on and inside the moon. Three, that extraterrestrials reside inside the earth. And some have free reign to abduct cattle and humans by written agreement. And then fourth, she inferred, inferred the existence of some kind of global ruling council. I hate the word cabal. Mm, I don't yeah. use it. Right. But that's conspiratorial in and of itself, the existence of some ruling global council. And I use the word inference because she doesn't come out and say that, but she infers that strings are being pulled somewhere. Yeah. The biggest sci-fi ideas ever. And she's telling you that it's true. Yeah. And here's the thing that I just typed up right from the book. It's just... Again, this is the, the bookend here, the circling back to the early part of cattle mutilations and that idea happening and, and possibly people in the missing 411 only coming back in small pieces or disappearing completely. As you said here in the book that Betty further stated, it, it's a, this is a longer version of one of your points here, it just chills me. Reptilian entities live in your Western desert and have since before man evolved into intelligent beings. Reptilians feed on the blood from cattle and will feed on human blood and tissue as well. Your government has a treaty that limits the number of human beings and the number of cattle that the reptilians can take. The reptilians have no obligation to return them or agreement as to their ethical treatment. Since the mid-1960s, they have failed to honor the agreed limits. What limitation, you asked her? Limits the number of humans that may be lawfully harvested. Likewise, the number of cattle from private ranches and federal land is limited according to the conditions in the Eisenhower Accord. Look, I hope there's a global unity that's part of a galactic federation that's keeping us in harmony with our alien neighbors. But this part here is chilling and disturbing above all else. It is. Two months after my book was out, my phone rang and it was Linda Milton Hot. And we talked for three hours. Get her on the show and ask her opinion. Yeah, we're going to tie this all in, I think, with other interviews as we go along to uh, give ourselves some time to digest this info. You know, it was interesting. You used the word sci-fi. You know, I was, I was researching the Hollow Moon thing. You know, there was a book written in 1901 by H.G. Wells yeah. called The First Men in the Moon. And it talks about a species of insectoids that live inside the moon. The moon's a hollow vessel. Crazy. I mean, we're in 1901. So crazy ideas come from somewhere. Exactly. And that's, that's the point I was just about to make, is that I believe ideas are out there. It's hard to prove, of course, but you wonder why Leonardo da Vinci, if he did, now there's some, it's contentious that he was the originator of a lot of the fantastical ideas for flying machines and whatnot, 
but it's out there. These ideas are out there. Somehow we're tapping in. We hear this constantly. We hear this with Stephen King. He he must know something that he's not telling us about, but they resonate so deeply with people that it makes people wonder, it makes the readers wonder, like, where are you getting these ideas? And here, then, now it seems like there's some agency that is outside of us that's exists outside of our sphere of understanding and, and reality that may be influencing the ideas we do get. Certainly, you're one of the most credible guests we've ever had, which is why we love talking with you, having you back on. And what the implications here are is it's earth shattering it possibly literally. I think so, too. But, you know, it's a lot to swallow. I mean, I, I don't say yeah. this is what I was told. Could I have been lied to? Sure. Could I be manipulated? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think so. For what that's worth, I don't think so. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series with Terry Lovelace on his new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. A very special thanks to Terry for joining us again. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Forrest and Scott, thank, thank you for supporting their sponsors. Thank you. Thank you. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and Brandon Schexnader. The show is co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>